Well, back when I was 24 years old, at a time right after I had graduated from college, I began my career as a music teacher. So for the first time, I had, quote unquote, a real full-time job. I was learning how to be an adult at that time. Well, one day I was at the mall, and if you've ever been to the mall and you see one of those cars that are parked in, awkwardly in the middle of the mall that you have to walk around. So I walked over and took a look. I'm like, that's a really nice car. I don't even remember what it was. But they had a little sign-up where you could win a, sign up to win the car. And I'm like, hey, why not? What do I have to lose? So I signed up to win this fancy new car. Wouldn't you know it, a few weeks later, my phone rings. Pick up the phone. I'm like... And they, 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 they announced who they, who they are and that I had filled out this thing to win this car. And I'm like, really? So what, what, what am I going to get? And I find out I win $300 to spend on stuff from some website. So I was a little bit disappointed. I'm like, well, you know, I didn't do anything. So. But in order to get this prize, I had to go to this office and sit through the presentation. And I didn't have to buy anything or do anything. I just had to go there in person and sit through this short presentation. And then I would get my... $300 to spend on this website of home stuff or whatever they had. So I figured it was a Saturday. I didn't have anything going on that day. It was only 10 minutes from my, where I was living. So what do I have to lose? So I went there. Wouldn't you know it, it was like a, it was like a presentation to join a timeshare company. Have you ever been to one of those, anybody? Well, it seemed like it was a pretty good deal because you could stay in, like, they had hundreds of different locations. You pay this small monthly fee. And then you get access to very, very, very affordable vacations. And so I thought about it, and they had to sign up then. So I, I didn't really think much about it. I kind of caved into the pressure. I signed up, and then I went home, and I got my $300, which doesn't go very far, by the way, on that website <laughs> of free stuff. And it was going to be shipped. And um, but later that evening, I was thinking to myself, starting to put the math together. I'm like, okay. The vacations are pretty cheap, but as I look at the fine print, the cheap prices are only for when it's not peak season. Well, after all, I was a music teacher, right? So I'm a music teacher. And so guess when all the peak seasons are? Right. Whenever I'm actually not working. To get the discounts, I'd have to, like, take a week off, which is not really, like, you're not supposed to do that. And you can't use your sick days to go on a vacation when you only have to work 180 days in the, in the building, Right. So I realized that I would not be able to take advantage of this. I also didn't calculate the fact that you can't just arrive there magically. You have to take a flight, right? So plane tickets, I thought, you know, maybe you need a rental car. You're probably going to have lots of other miscellaneous travel expenses with normal vacations. And I realized this was a really, really, really dumb decision on my part because I'd be paying this money and I wouldn't even be able to use the vacations. But what's funny is, and that kind of sad, is that at no point, by the way, I did get out of it. I went back to the office the next day, and I pleaded my case, and I, they finally realized I wasn't going to go away, so they let me out of it. But the sad part of the story was that at no point did I take this as a decision that I needed to bring to the Lord, right? Because it wasn't a sin issue, right? There's nothing sinful about joining a timeshare company. You're not going to be able to open the Bible and find, thou shall not join a timeshare. You know, thou shall not take that job in another state, or thou shalt, right? You're not going to find that specific direction. So because it wasn't an overt sin issue, so to speak, I didn't, it didn't occur to me to like take time and pray to the Lord about this decision, to ask him to give me guidance and help me. 
So more at stake, what was more at stake here was more than just a poor financial decision. I mean, for some people, it would probably make a lot of sense if you can use the non-peak times, right? But for me, it, it was more of a, the issue was not just that it wasn't a wise financial decision for my specific situation. It was that I didn't see it as a decision that I should bring to the Lord in prayer and seek his guidance. I caved into the pressure to make a quick decision. Well, today we're going to begin a new series. We're going to be going through the life of Joshua. And Joshua and the Israelite leaders had a big decision to make. And um, you, as we know, Joshua would take the place of Moses, and he would be the one to lead Israel from the desert into the promised land across the Jordan River, not Moses. It would be Joshua who would be leading the people. And so, for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the life of Joshua. And we'll, today, we're going to be going out of order a little bit, and we're going to be starting with Joshua chapter 9. And in this passage, uh, Joshua has a big decision to make. The Israel leaders have a big decision to make. And I think the principle that we see in today's passage is that because God provides wisdom and discernment, we should seek his guidance before we act. Because God provides wisdom and discernment, we should seek his guidance before we act. Now, if you recall Pastor Marv's last sermon on Moses, like we said, Moses dies, Joshua is the one that leads the people into the promised lands. And here's the key, the Israelites were repeatedly told that they were to conquer and take the promised land. They were not to make covenants with the people who lived in this small territory. They were not to live among them. Now, they were allowed to make covenants with people outside of the promised land, just not to this very small and specific area that the Lord was leading them into and that they were told that they were to possess as a people. Now, in this series through the life of Joshua, like I said, we're not going to go through chronologically every aspect of his, of his life in the, in, in the order, but so I'll have to give you a short synopsis of how we got to chapter 9. You ready? Okay, prior to today's passage, there's the famous account where Joshua leads the Israelites around the city of Jericho. You know that story where they walk, march around Jericho and then they blow the trumpets and the walls fall and they take the city of Jericho. Shortly after that, there's a little bit of disobedience, but eventually the Lord gives them victory against another large city, the city of Ai. And finally, what we see is there's this people group called the Gibeonites. Gibeon is smack dab in the middle of Israel, in the Promised Land. And they come to Joshua and the leaders seeking a peace treaty. So let's pick up there, Joshua chapter 9. We won't read all chapter 9. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 to 21. Let's read together. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the low land along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua in Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended. 
with worn out patched sandals on their feet with worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country, your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan who lived in Ashtoreth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for your journey, and go meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It is still warm when we took it out of our houses as our food for the journey on the day that we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were, were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from a very long journey. So the men took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of the three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, uh, Cherepah, Biroth, and Kiroth-Jerim. But the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, but all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath we have sworn to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water, for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. So the first principle we see in this passage is there is a way that seems right to a man. There is a way that seems right to a man. Notice verse 13. I, I, I said it really slowly and emphatically, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Now think about this. Had the author left that comment and detail out of this narrative, we probably would just think Joshua and the leaders got duped. And then they were just being gracious to the people. They were the heroes in this story. They were duped. They didn't do anything wrong. They were deceived. And then they honored their covenant anyway. Now, so the supposed leaders of this people, they approached Joshua peacefully, right? And the condition of their supplies, everything was worn out and dry, it matched their story of coming from a long ways off, as you'd expect it to. After all, the command to not make covenants um, was restricted to this New Jersey-sized area of the promised land that they were supposed to possess. The easy answer was just to take the people at their word. They said they were from far away, so we'll just take them at their word. Proverbs 14:12 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads 
is the way to death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. See, on the surface, it seems like a pretty easy to mis- mistake to make, doesn't it? Um, this is not a small decision, is it? This is a decision about going to war or having peace. I mean, even aside of seeking the Lord's guidance in their decision, there's a lot more that they could have done, isn't there? While the author might just be giving a summary of the conversation, maybe just a few more questions, maybe a little bit more investigation on the part of Joshua and the Israelites would be in order before signing a covenant or making a covenant with people. And so I think what's going on here is the next principle we see is that the heart is deceitful. The heart is deceitful. I don't think they wanted to do the hard work. They didn't want to find out if this mysteries people's story was true. After all, their, their answer to the reasonable question, think about this. They said, who are you and where did you come from in verse 8 and 9? And what was the response? From a distant country. Hmm. So they claim to have traveled this great distance to where their supplies have worn out. And all they bother to say is that they're from a distant country. Shouldn't the follow-up question have been, you know, does this distant country have a name? Duh, right? Who's your king? Who are your leaders? Who, are you, who do you have alliances and other covenants with and agreements with? Yeah, that's kind of an evasive answer, right, from a distant country. Imagine if some leader snuck into the United Nations and wanted them to, like, have access to, like, nuclear materials and stuff. And they asked them what country they were from. And they were like, um, we're on the southern hemisphere, Right? I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So while we're not told specifically, I think that they suspected they were being lied to, don't you? And they just wanted to take them at the word. I think they were tired from all the fighting, from war. I think they were tired of having to place their trust in God and to follow his lead into battle, into unknown situations where they would be forced to depend on the Lord to provide. I think they were just tired of living by faith. You know, if they're being lied to, they could just throw their hands up and say, hey, it wasn't our fault. We asked them where they were from. They said from a distant country. We, it's not our fault. See, Jeremiah 17.9 says this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The heart is deceitful and above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So often the message of the world is, is, is backwards. It's follow your heart. Whatever you feel like doing, do it. You know, that is to be led by your emotions. Trust your heart. Trust your feelings. Trust what you want to do. That's the message of the world. But following your heart leads all kinds of problems. It leads people into affairs. It leads them into get-rich-quick schemes. All into all sorts of worthless and even destructive pursuits. Even into illegal activity. That's often where the human heart leads us. Think about the heroes in movies. Think about how most movies are portrayed. Isn't the hero always the guy who doesn't accept his own limitations and weaknesses and abilities? And he's like, I'm going to do it. I want to achieve this. And so I'm going to do it no matter what anyone else says because I'm going to prove to the world that I can do what I want. And sometimes it is an inspiring story, but quite often it's all about you. You decide what you are, what you want to do, what you want to be, and don't let anything stop you from what you want and your achievement. And who's the, who's the anti-hero? 
the, the bad example in most movies. It's always the person that says, I, I have these abilities, I have this, these resources, and so I'm going to be faithful with those things. I'm not going to pursue this over here because I feel like this is the way I've been made. This is what I'm good at. These are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. No, it's always the person who just goes for it, even though everyone else tells them that they're wrong. This isn't to say that our hearts are always aligned against our best interests or even our, the will of God. Think about Psalm 34, I'm sorry, Psalm 37.4, a familiar verse. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, that's first, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Notice the change of order. It doesn't begin by us deciding what we're passionate about and then running to God and say, God, make this happen. It says first to delight ourselves in the Lord, Lord, and he will give us the desires of our heart. You see, finding our significance in being his children and his image bearers and seeking to discover who he calls us to be. Now, this is not meant to be something that's sad and deflating. See, the Christian life is not supposed to be us trudging along real sad, you know, in mournful obedience, trying to suppress our deepest desires, but it's one in which God shapes and forms our deepest desires, in which he sends us joyfully on mission to be his ambassadors, reflecting his glory. How do we access this wisdom from God? Well, I think we can see throughout Scripture that wisdom from God is available to all. Wisdom from God is available to all. Romans 1, 19-20 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There's a theological term called general revelation. Now, revelation, we hear that word a lot because we have a book in the Bible called Revelation, right? Well, think about the, what the word means. It means that God is revealing something. Now, we know God reveals sometimes in special ways to certain people in, 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 in crafting of his written word. But general revelation is the idea that there are certain things about God that the whole world is aware of. And has no excuse not to realize. That's general revelation. Think about Proverbs 2, 4 to 6. And what it says about wisdom. It says to seek for wisdom. As is for hidden treasures. That we should understand the fear of the Lord. In verse 6 it says for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So we're seeking the Lord's wisdom. We're seeking for it as a a lost treasure that we're trying to find. It's, there's work and there's effort and there's time put into seeking the Lord's wisdom. You see, God provides wisdom in all situations. Think about Israel's recent journey through the desert. Now, while this generation wouldn't have personally experienced being freed from slavery in Egypt, they experienced God's continued provision and direction from them for their whole life. Many years they went out and they were in the desert where they weren't growing food, they weren't stationary, 
And every morning they would go out and there would be manna and quail from heaven for them to collect. Six days a week. And they would go out. But the manna had only ceased a short time after they had crossed into the promised land and were able to gather food there. And now they, now they have these victories at Jericho and Ai. But when they came about, is it came about when they were obedient to the Lord's direction and when they sought him. Yet in this instance, they neither sought nor waited for to hear from the Lord before deciding to make a covenant with this mystery people that claimed to be from far away. Now as those created in his image and those privy to his revelation, he leads you and I into responsible decisions. This is true for big decisions like war and peace, who we marry, the career that he calls us to, but it's also important in smaller decisions in our day-to-day -day lives, whether we should buy that new car or not, whether we should take that job or not, whether we, all those seemingly small, small decisions that we make in our lives, the Lord desires to provide us wisdom uh, for our own good and for the good of others. But we also see in this passage that believers have the discerning voice of the Holy Spirit. Believers have the discerning voice of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, 12-14, this is the Apostle Paul, he says this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, when you and I call on Jesus for salvation, we were indwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It's through the Holy Spirit that we have the power of Jesus' life at work in us. So how do we learn to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? In this passage, in the book of Joshua, we see that we are to meditate on God's word. We are to meditate on God's word. In the first chapter of Joshua, verse 8, the Lord spoke to Joshua and commanded him to not let the law of Moses, given to Moses and the Israelites, to depart from his lips, but to meditate on it day and night. You see, for us, this concept of meditating may seem odd, it may seem strange, but it means more than just reading through Scripture, as important as that is. It includes spending time in allowing the words and their meaning to penetrate our hearts as we're asking the Holy Spirit to reveal what God is teaching to us through his word. Now, when applied to seeking wisdom for specific situations, while spending time in prayer and in God's word, the Holy Spirit will often bring to mind another verse in his word that will have a special meaning to us. See, a non-believer, they can read through God's word. They can understand certain truths. Right? They can make logical sense out of some of the logical arguments and things of that sort. They can say, hey, that idea to do unto others as they 
as you would have them do unto you. It makes sense. It seems logical. So non-believers can make certain sense of things within God's word. But for us, the Holy Spirit will guide us, will convict us of sin, and will give us direction in our lives as we spend time with him in prayer and meditation on his word. Well, how do we know what we're hearing from the Holy Spirit is from God? Well, the Holy Spirit's guidance always agrees with God's word. The Holy Spirit's guidance always agrees with God's word. Hebrews 6.18 says this, It's impossible for God to lie. One thing we can be certain of is that the Holy Spirit is never going to contradict God's written word because then God would be lying, right? He's not going to tell us something in his word and then tell you or me to disobey his written word because God does not lie. And if he did lie, we wouldn't have no reason for trusting him. So I'm always wary when someone says the words, God told me to tell you, or God told me this. I'm always wary when I hear those words, not because God does not speak to us, but if what I'm hearing the person say does not agree with God's word, it's confusing, and, and it's not uplifting, I, I, I'm believing what they're experiencing is not that they're hearing from God, but they are following their own hearts, and they are trying to put God's stamp of approval on what they want to do, or what they want you to do. But it's never too late to begin to seek God's voice and obey. It's never too late to begin to seek God's voice and obey. Now, when I first heard this account of Joshua's covenant with the Gibeonites many years ago, I really didn't understand the issue and why Joshua felt compelled to honor the covenant. If I was Joshua, I would have been like, well, I didn't make a covenant with the Gibeonites. I made a covenant with the people from a faraway country, right? They claimed they were from a faraway country, so I didn't make a covenant with them. They lied about their identity, so the contract should be void. I think it was the same thing the first time I ever thought through the account of um, Esau and Jacob. When, when Jacob deceives his father Isaac and pretends to be his brother in order to get the rights of the firstborn son, and he goes in and he covers himself with the animal skins so that his father will think he's really hairy like his brother. And he deceives Isaac and then Isaac gives him the blessing of the firstborn. I mean, I, th I remember thinking of that. If I was Isaac, I would have been like, I don't care if you're Jacob. I don't care if you're Big Bird. I didn't make, I didn't make you the firstborn. <laughs> I gave the blessing to Esau. If you're not Esau, then too bad, right? That's how we would view that account in a 21st century um, Western um, culture, right? Because in our, in our world, you know, if you, if you make a contract with somebody, let's say you're, uh, you're going to contract someone to do like a, a uh, you know, catering for something, and you, they, they tell you that they're going to get the food from this really fancy place, and they're going to make all these special dishes. And then you find out that they're not going to do that. They're going to bring Burger King instead. But they're going to charge you like you're buying this expensive food. Burger King's okay, but, you know, if you're paying for filet mignon, you don't want to get a um, Whopper, right? And in our, in our world, we would say, they've avoided the contract, so we don't have to keep ours, and that seems very just, right? But covenants were more binding in that culture than we would, we, we would do in a contract today in our world. Um, and knowing God's word and his character and the everlasting covenants that he had made with his people Israel 
even though the Israelites weren't keeping their end. Joshua knew that he should honor the covenant that he made with this people, even though the people entered into that covenant dishonestly. Though con- next principle we see is that though consequences may remain, God will bring good out of today's obedience. Though consequences may remain, God will bring good out of today's obedience. Now, this passage starts out poorly on the part of Joshua, right? And the Israelites. And it ends with Joshua honoring the covenant that he made, even though the other people weren't honoring or weren't honorable in their, their presentation. Yet, there would be consequences to the fact that he did not, he and the leaders did not go to the Lord in prayer and seek the Lord's guidance. There would be consequences. Now, following God's plan and leading would be complicated because remember, they had been commanded to not make covenants with the people who were from this small area, the promised land. So now it complicated things because now they would be living in the midst of this other people group. And um, although they would be a people that were called to be a blessing to all nations, they were also called to be a people set apart and separate and set unto God. We're not told why, but the Gibeons, they have a curious history with the Israelites going forward. Now their city, as we said earlier, was like smack dab in the middle of Israel, in the promised land. Now, what's interesting is that there's two views that commentators present when they talk about the Gibeonites. On one hand, a lot of times they just get lumped in with all the other groups that were considered Canaanites that lived among Israel and led them into rebellion and rejection of God. But there's another view um, that many commentators have. One commentator, such as David Guzik, points out that some of the positives of the Gibeonites as they lived in Israel's midst throughout their history. Now, the Gibeonites did become servants of the tabernacle, as Joshua commanded. Um, It became a priestly city. The Ark of the Covenant was actually there during the time of David and part of the time of King Solomon, before the temple was built. In uh, 2 Samuel, we read about David's mighty men. Remember, these these leaders who uh, were recognized as just being awesome for King David? Well, one of them was a Gibeonite. The prophet Hananiah was a Gibeonite. So when we make mistakes in our lives, often because we didn't seek the Lord's guidance first, there are often consequences that can't be undone. Our lives are examples of that, right? We can look back on our lives and think about the times that we honored the Lord. We can think about times that we did not follow the Lord. And where we are in the present is a mix mix of those failures and successes. And then we are called each day new to live our lives to God's glory despite those consequences. But when we make mistakes in our life, it's because we didn't seek the Lord's guidance first. Whether it's we we fell into some irresponsible get-rich-quick scheme, whether we have gotten ourselves burdened by making quick decisions financially and now we are underwater and we're in all this debt, whatever situation we find us in, Maybe it's unwise associations. Maybe it's unwise relationships. And now we're kind of stuck and entangled in these situations. But each day the Lord provides us with wisdom and the ability to honor him and to do what we said we would do. 
Now, as we turn back to the Lord and seek his voice, and we obey his word in the midst of the quagmires that of our own making, he will bring good and sometimes even blessing out of it in ways that we never expected. Finally, we see that God protects those that take shelter under his wings. God protects those that take shelter under his wings. Now, when the deceitful Gibeonites, when they first approached the Israelite leaders, remember what they said. They said this, and I actually have the words on the screen because I want you to notice this. Because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Eshbon, and to Og king of Bashan who lived in Ashdod, right? But I want you to notice L-O-R-D, all capital letters. And it's interesting, the Kibbeanites, they could have joined forces with those other, other uh, nations that were in the area. Remember at the beginning of the chapter when you hear about the, the Perizzites, Hivites, Canaanites, all these groups, they could have joined forces with them in an alliance against Israel, but they did not. And if you look in your Bible, you can check this in your own Bible, you'll see that Lord, L-O-R-D, is in all caps. We don't normally write words in all caps, do we? Okay, so this is to distinguish Lord in the generic sense from a very specific name of God that he used of himself. And you'll see this throughout the Old Testament in many places. All capitals, L-O-R-D. And whenever you see it, in our English translations, it's translated from the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's not a generic Lord. This was the name God had revealed himself to the Israelites as his covenant people. Thus the Gibeonites, Gibeonites they weren't just throwing out some vague word for God. Like various people groups had the God of this and the God of that. And the God that tells them to sacrifice their children to Moloch. And the God that tells them to do this other silly thing. They were appealing to a very specific name of God. And you think about the God of Isaac. The God of Abraham. The God of Jacob. The one true God that had revealed himself to Moses. What did he say? I am, I am is my name. In other words, I'm just not a... I'm not just one of many gods. I am the God that is. The real deal. The only and one true God. They recognized, the Gibeonites, that the Lord's hand was behind the victories and being freed from slavery in Egypt. That the true God was the one who had been working on behalf of Israel. Israel didn't just have a tough army, but it was the one true God, time and time again, that fought for them and delivered them from their troubles. And it's not the first time, and it won't be the last that we see in the Old Testament, that people outside of the group of Israelites, the people of Israel, who were brought under Yahweh's protection. Consider in chapter, in the early part of Joshua, Rahab the prostitute and her family who were spared because they took shelter under Yahweh. Consider of Ruth the Moabite, who ended up being King David's great-grandmother, who was a Moabitess, and she decided to take her shelter under the, the hand of Yahweh. You see, when we place ourselves under the shelter of his wings, we will experience his protection in our lives. Now, this protection, it does not mean that we're not going to experience hardship. We all know that, right? It does not mean that we won't experience persecution. But what it does mean to place ourselves under Yahweh's protection 
is that our lives will serve an eternal purpose. Our lives will serve an eternal purpose. All of us will face many decisions. I, I imagine in a congregation this size that many of you will face even large decisions, life-altering decisions in the near future. And all of us will face those small, seemingly insignificant decisions that can have a great impact on our ability to live our lives completely set apart for the Lord. So as we close, may we be a people sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit, earnestly seeking the wisdom that only He provides. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is true, that as we place ourselves under your protection, we can trust the direction that our lives go. We, we thank you that at each new day you give us the ability to live for your glory. That though there are consequences for the times in our lives and the messes that we make, that you, you give us a new chance every day to live our lives for your glory. I pray, pray, Lord, that you would help us wherever we are situated in our lives, no matter how, how free or how trapped we feel in whatever situations we're going through. Whether they're situations caused by the choices and sins of others or situations of our own making, that we would seek to glorify you in these situations, renewing today to always take time to meditate on your word and to seek your guidance uh, so that what, what we experience and the decisions that we make will impact your kingdom and our lives will bring glory to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.